Thank you for listening to the Encounter Church Podcast. For more information, go to www.encounterccb.org. Well, good morning. Uh, welcome. Uh, thanks for tuning in. Uh, that was awesome. Um, I hope you were blessed by worship this morning. Uh, we are coming uh, or continuing our summer series. That's a great question where we have spent the summer months answering the questions uh, that you all provided. We asked you to submit uh, questions of faith about God, about what the Bible says, uh, and we have uh, made a list and we have been going through those uh, all summer. And so today we are uh, answering, this is our second to last week. La- next week, uh, Pastor Dave will come up and conclude the service or conclude our series. Uh, but today's question uh, is awesome. I love it. I'm jazzed to be uh, talking about it. And uh, here's what it is. Uh, uh, Gen Z, which is uh, people between the ages of 5 and 25, are the least uh, religious and least church generation ever recorded in, in history. 4% of this generation have a Christian worldview. And so the question is this, is Christianity out of touch with today's culture? Is Christianity out of, today, out of touch with today's culture? And so we're going to dive into that, but I'm going to first just answer it straight up with a yes and no question, because I think uh, sometimes that helps to just lay the groundwork. Is Christianity out of touch with today's culture? Yeah, it is. And that's not a bad thing. And so I want to, as you think about this, as you wrap your head around this, I want to start with a question uh, with you guys, and uh, uh, I want you to answer this question. Uh, Should Christianity and the church reflect our culture? I want you to think about that for a minute. If you've gone onto our our website and downloaded our our message outline, uh, maybe you can jot some of your answers there on the back or some of your thoughts about this, Uh, but go on to encounterccb.org. We have a message outline there uh, where you can follow along. But should Christianity or should the church reflect our culture? And to help you think about this, I want you to think about the difference between a thermometer and a thermostat. A thermometer and a thermostat. A thermometer, as you know, like when you have a fever or uh, you want to see uh, the temperature outside, you use a thermostat, right? You want to see uh, what the temperature is going to be of something or someone. Uh, and so a thermometer reflects the, the, the culture or the, the, the climate or the temperature of its surroundings. And it adjusts to whatever the surroundings are. A thermostat, on the ha- other hand, does the complete opposite. A thermostat is like the boss, man. It, it goes into a room and it says, it is going to be this temperature and, and that's it. And I'm sure some of you uh, during these uh, summer months are very uh, thankful for a thermostat. It's, it's down in the low 70s. We're freezing here in church today. We've got a thermostat way down. It feels great. But a, therm- a, ther- a thermostat sets the mood for the room. It says, here's what the temperature is going to be and then it is. And so with that brilliant analogy in mind, I want you to hear this. Christianity and the church was never meant to be a thermometer, but rather we are called to be a thermostat. If we as a faith body blend in and feel and look and talk and do the same things that non-Christians look and feel and do and talk, then we have compromised the teachings of Jesus Christ and we have watered down what the Bible and what God truly is trying to get across to us and mankind. Just check out some of Jesus' teachings if you go back to the Bible day and read about what he was saying. 
What does culture say if someone hits you in the face? You swing back. But in Christianity, or what Jesus taught back in the day, is that you turn the other cheek. Jesus said to love your enemies, do, go, do good to those who hurt you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Is that the first instinct of those of you who are in culture, those in our, our society? Culture, or when I say culture or society, I'll, I'll use the phrase normal. It's normal to hate your enemies. But Jesus said to love them. Culture says to seek revenge on those who hurt you. But Jesus says, instead of seeking revenge, be kind to those who harm you. He told us to pray for those who persecute us. And, and, and this, this one really gets me. If you want to find your lives, what does Jesus say to do? You must lose it. You must lose your life if you truly want to find your life. Those things are not taught in our society. Those things are not normal, but rather they're kind of the, uh, looked at as kind of being weird or just the opposite of what uh, is normal, what cu culture would say to do. So just by those examples, we see that following Jesus means that we don't go along with what is normal. What Jesus was teaching wasn't normal in those days. I'm gonna to turn to John 15, 18 through 21 uh, and read a little bit about what God says about the world. He says this, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. Now, what I'd love to do is, is every time it says the word you, just substitute the word church. So Cindy, if we can go back to, to verse 18, uh, read that and replace the word you with, with church. If the world hates the church... Know that it has hated, know that it has hated me before it hated the church. If the church were of the world, the world would love it as its own. You see what, he, what, what, what we're getting at with, uh, with, the, with the teachings of Jesus and the, the, with the teachings of culture, what is normal, are completely different a lot of the times. 1 John 2, 15 through 17, the heading of this uh, piece of, of passage here says, uh, do not love the world. And Jesus is talking here, instructing us not to fall in love with what culture is, is, is doing and saying and teaching. He says this, starting at 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. For, forever. Both of these passages are speaking of the contrary between what is normal and culture, the world, and what God and what, what Jesus is, is teaching and what he is wanting from his followers. So as the church as believers, we can take some comfort in the fact that we should not look like the world or act, act as if those who are in the world are acting if you are true and authentic Christ followers. 
Now, it doesn't end there. We can't just say to the world, uh, you hate us, that's okay, you suck and we're right. That's not the attitude that we take. We are called to be salt and light in the world. We are to be on mission to those who, to, who, to those who hate the church and who are not of the church. Those who have a relationship with God should naturally want to bring these people to a closer relationship with God. And so I want to trans- transition now and talk about those who uh, consider themselves the 96%. I'm going to talk about, uh, uh, we, we talked about earlier how 4% of the people have a Christian worldview in a Gen Z, those 96% who don't have a Christian worldview, uh, basically those who don't have God. And I want to talk about who needs God. Who needs God? And do we really need God? For some people, the question isn't really do we need God or, or, or who needs God, but for a lot of people, the question is do we need religion? Who needs religion? And more and more Americans than ever are giving up or backing away from religion. And the reason they're pulling away from religion and pulling away from God isn't because they're atheists. It isn't because they don't think there is a God. It's because atheism, it isn't because atheism is so attractive. It's just that religion is less attractive to them. In fact, more and more people in our culture, more and more people in the United States would say, Tim, religion is actually the problem. We were brought up to believe that religion has the answers, that religion is the solution. But more and more, as we look around what's happening in the world, it's easy to come to the conclusion that no, the truth is religion is the problem. Right after 9-11, uh, most of you are alive for that occasion. Uh, right after 9-11, when the ten, Twin Towers were destroyed and the Pentagon was attacked, right after that, there was an initial surge in this country around all things religion. And basically, all, uh, uh, that next Sunday after 9-11, that first Sunday uh, that, that churches opened up, they were packed. Christian churches, Jewish churches, synagogues, uh, Catholic churches, they were packed. The second Sunday after 9-11, the churches were packed. People flooded to churches. And then the third Sunday after 9-11, it all went back to normal. That, that initial surge lasted two weeks. And then something interesting uh, kind of happened. We saw um, that, that something interesting happened that you probably weren't aware of, but we have been affected by for a very long time. And what it is is this surge of anti-religiousness that is going around in our country. Uh, neuroscientist Sam Harris began writing a book that would eventually be published called The End of Faith. The end of faith, and the, and the subtitle was Religion, Terror, and the Future of Reason. And uh, Sam, he, he turned this book into publisher after publisher after publisher. None of them would touch this thing. Uh, ten, Twelve different publishers uh, declined to print it until one finally did. And over, uh, after over a dozen publishers that, that declined this, uh, it went into print, and the book spent 33 weeks on the New York Times bestsellers list. And the purpose of this book wasn't to, uh, it wasn't necessarily an anti-Christian book or an anti-Jewish book or anti-Muslim book even, or an Islam book. It was just all saying all religions were at fault for this thing. And Christians hated this book. So much so, he got so much negative response to this book, he wrote a second one titled uh, Letters to a Christian Nation. And it specifically addressed Christianity. 
and saying that Christians, Christians are basically the problem or that we're the problem, that religion is the problem. The same year, Richard Dawkins published a book called uh, The God Delusion. And uh, he was very straightforward with this book. Uh, he said right in the beginning of the book, the purpose for writing this book, he said this, if this, book's wor- if this book works as I intend, re- religious readers who open it will be atheists when they put it down. That book sold three million copies. It was published in over 35 different languages. Now, there's another book called uh, the, the God Delusion. Well, maybe you've read that one that was also very, very popular. There's these three or four guys that had these anti-religion, anti-Christian books uh, that exploded onto the scene in the early 2000s. And these, gods were, these guys were rock stars. They were on late, late night television. They were YouTube sensations. Uh, millions of people viewed their arguments on YouTube. They sold millions and millions of books. And while there wasn't an initial surge of atheism, a significant percentage of our people in our nation, religious people in our, in our nation, began to disconnect from all religion. In fact, so many people have disconnected from religion and disconnected from faith and disconnected from God that there's actually a term to describe these people. There's a growing population of nuns in our culture. That's the term that describes these people. They're nuns. They're people that, that just don't have a belief. They, they, they want to distance themselves from everything religion, everything from the Bible, everything from church. They're non-affiliated. And recent studies show it's about 23% of the U.S. population and 35% of millennials. Millennials are like 25 to 35 age group. 35% of them consider themselves to be nuns, not affiliated. And what they say is that we're not hostile toward Christianity or the church. We're not just affiliated with it. We don't dislike people. We don't think people who go to church are foolish. We don't look down upon them. It's just not for us. Don't ask us necessarily any hard questions. This isn't some uh, philosophical thing that we bought into. We're just done with religion. And I can't help but to think that the church has some fault to this. And some church leaders have some fault to this of of driving this generation of nuns. But when you open up the pages of the Gospels, when you read the four accounts of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you read about Jesus' ministry, when you read about what he did and how how he approached people, how he affected people, something profound stood out to me. And that's this. It's the third point in your outline. People who were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus. It's from the beginning all the way to the end that people who were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus. That Jesus, the person Jesus, not just the miracle worker, not just the teacher who taught things that we can't figure out, but there was something about this Jesus that was attractive to them. And it wasn't a building, it wasn't a religion, it was what he taught. It was what the message that he brought that attracted people who knew, looked nothing like Jesus, who talked nothing like Jesus, who believed in nothing like Jesus, liked him. And so if Christianity is not compelling, if Christianity is so easy to migrate from, I convinced it's because we have the wrong version of Christianity. And the thing that convinces me more 
than anything are the deconversion stories that I, I hear over the past uh, many years. Uh, as I said up front, I, 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 I am very interested in this topic, being a youth leader for now almost two decades. I have ministered to hundreds and hundreds of teenagers who are in the church, who are involved in the church, who you can see their lives flourish and growing in faith, and then when they get to their, their college years or maybe later, fall away from the church. And I've, I've, I've spent years and decades just thinking, why is that? How do you go from being churched to believing, to following, to have it, having it be no part of your life whatsoever? And I listen to people talk about migrating away from God and faith and Christianity specifically. I hear the reasons that they're saying. And what I want to say to them is, wait a minute. I don't believe in that God either. Sometimes the reasons that people are, are falling away from Christ and the church are not the things that Jesus taught. And so I want to suggest this, that maybe if you've gone uh, to church before, you've fallen away from church, maybe you're just going through the motions. Maybe you, your, your faith wasn't actually authentic and, and that you were there for other reasons. Maybe you were there for friends, you were there for the community, you were there for uh, the, the fun, whatever it might be. But maybe you were there for the wrong reasons and you were just going through the motions. You know, uh, with uh, this whole... Uh, a pandemic going around. I spent a lot more time just because you can't go anywhere else, uh, going out outdoors and, and walking the dog. I, I think every time I grab the leash, my dogs are looking at me thinking, again, geez, Louise. But uh, I do a lot of just things outdoors. And um, a couple weeks ago, I was just starting to walk out and my neighbor is standing in front of her big uh, giant bay window and uh, she, she waves to me. I thought, oh, that's nice. So I wave back. Then I take a few more steps, and I see she's continuing to wave to me, and now it's like, like bigger. She's going like this in front of the window. It's like, yeah, I, I see you. Hi, how you doing? And I start walking again, and, and I happen to look up again, and there she is. She's now switched arms, and she's going like this and trying to get my attention and waving and waving. And I was like, I see you. Hi. And I realized she was just cleaning her windows. But sometimes you could be just going through the motions. Uh, Barna Group is a, a group that, that, that uh, does studies, and they did a study one time. They asked Americans, uh, how do you grow in your faith? How do you grow in your faith? I'm going to ask you that question too. How do you grow in your faith? Write down uh, maybe on your, on your outline, or if, you're, uh, uh, if you don't have that, just think about how do you grow in your faith? Well, they did a comprehensive study. They asked people just in, in, in coming out of stores or in malls or doing just, just a, a robotic calls and saying, how do you grow in your faith? And people offered a variety of answers. Prayer, family, friends, reading the Bible, having children. Those were the top five things of how you grow in your faith. But I was intrigued that something that I thought was very obvious didn't even make the top 10 list. Do you know what that is? Church. How do you grow in faith? Church did not even crack the top 10 list. And although church involvement was once a cornerstone of American life, adults today are evenly divided on the importance of attending church. 49% of, of adults today uh, would say that it was somewhat or, or unimportant. 
and 51% of people would say that it is important. That's like a 50-50 split of the importance of church, where years ago, even non-church people would say, yeah, church is important. I probably should do that more. This Barnett group also did a study on the top five reasons why people left the church. Number one is that the church was irrelevant. What we're talking about today, that the church was irrelevant, they, that the messages that were they heard or the, the, uh, the things that were coming out of that didn't impact or affect their lives. The second thing was that God was missing in the church. This one surprised me a little bit, that they actually went to church, they were trying to seek the truth, but, but they didn't see God in it. A third reason was that doubt was prohibited. They weren't actually allowed to have questions. They had to have uh, all of their life together. They had to have scripture memorized. They had to be able to recite uh, the Apostles' Creed, things like that. They weren't allowed to doubt. And the fourth reason people gave for leaving the church is that they weren't learning about God. They were saying, you know, sitting through, through 45-minute sermons, the, the, the language was over their head, the topics didn't hit them, uh, they weren't learning. And then fifth is that they weren't finding community. They went to a church to be able to find community, to, to build a friendship group, and that wasn't happening. Now, I can say, and maybe I'm a little bit biased, uh, this church, Encounter Christian Church, I think would pass all of those things with flying colors. And so I want to encourage you, if Encounter Church is your home, I want to say well done because these are the things that we hear from people who come here for the first time, who, who begin to get involved in our church, say these things, that, the, that the, the gospel is preached in an understandable way, that community is, is like a, a backbone to our church, that they find friendships and community groups that are awesome in their lives. And so Encounter Church, well done. But that isn't the answer that most people are saying. Dr. Uh, Bruce Riley Ashford wrote about the relationship between Christianity and culture in his book, Every Square Inch, and he came to the conclusion that there are three views on the relationship between Christianity and culture. There's three views between how Christians should relate to culture, and I want to go through these things and kind of uh, wrap up what we're talking about, right? So I've, I've laid out the, I'm like the defense lawyer, right? I've laid out the case that there's a divide between uh, culture and, and the church in America, and so you have these two conflict, not, yeah, there, there's a conflicting messages, right? Culture and the church. And how should this church then re- communicate and interact with the culture? There's three views. The first one was this, that there's Christianity against culture. This per- first perspective sees Christianity and culture as two opposing forces of influence, The church stands on one side, uh, and culture, or what's normal for society, stands on this side. And there's a temptation for Americans who realize that their country is becoming increasingly post-Christian, and in some ways even anti-Christian. They realize that their beliefs on certain theological and moral issues uh, will increasingly be rejected or mocked by the outside. And so they view church as almost like a bomb shelter, like this is my safe place. If I come here into the church, I can't be attacked by, by the outside forces. Like, I'm safe right here in my beliefs. And so you venture out to, to culture to go to work and to send your kids to school maybe, but, but you can't wait for the time when you can go right back into your bomb shelter and be safe over here in the church. That's the first view. The second view is that uh, says Christianity of culture. It's completely opposite. This view embraces culture, and it brings it into church. 
Those with a Christianity of culture perspective tend to build churches that mirror culture. And generally, this view sees advances in culture and positive changes the church should embrace. And so, as a culture makes big decisions about how they look, feel, and what they say, the church mirrors that and takes that in. Christianity of culture. But when Christianities adopt this view, this mindset, they take away Christianity's ability to speak into culture. And usually they end up sacrificing doctrines and moral beliefs that run contrary to cultural consensus. And the third view is this. It's Christianity in and for culture. A third and better mindset is one that views human beings as representatives of Christ who live their lives in the midst of and for the good of their cultural context and whose cultural lives are characterized by obedience and witness. As Christians, we are called to be Christ's ambassadors. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 20 says this, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. It's not making his appeal through, through uh, anything else. He said he makes his appeal through us, Christ followers. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Ambassadors represent something, represent someone. And as Christ followers, it's very clear here in this verse in 2 Corinthians that as Christ followers, we represent God. As ambassadors, we are fully immersed in the culture, but everything about us points back to the one that we serve. It doesn't mean that we agree with everything that culture does, but we learn to understand it and speak its language, identify its true desires, and with the intentions of showing how Christ is the only one who can correctly fulfill those well-meaning desires. We must remove the barrier between uh, sacred and secular and allow the gospel to inform everything that we do. We are to live our lives firmly in the midst of of the cultural context, proclaiming Jesus with our lips and promoting him with our lives. Ashford concludes this and says this, every aspect of human life and culture is ripe for Christian witness. Every dimension of culture, whether it is art, science, or politics, is an arena in which we can speak about Christ with our lips and reflect him with our lives. We thank God for the existence of culture and recognize whatever is good in it, we at the same time seeking to redirect whatever is not good toward Christ. That is a powerful, powerful statement. We should reflect Christ in art, in science, in politics, or whatever arena. If you post something on social media about politics, people should read that and think, oh, that's what Jesus is saying. They shouldn't read that and say, oh, that guy or that girl's a Republican, or read it and say, oh, that guy or that girl's a Democrat. They should read your post and say, oh, that guy or that girl is a Christ follower. That's how we are involved in culture. Not to ignore it and and stay here in our bomb shelter, shelter and say, this is us and that's them. Not to join them and be a part of them and and, and, uh, uh, embrace their views. But to be in culture, representing Christ, 
and have everything that we do represent him, representing Jesus and then speaking into culture. So I want to close by, by, by kind of the, the so what. This week I struggled a little bit just to be transparent because there are two audiences here today. There's two audiences that are listening. One are the nuns. I'm sure we have a lot of nuns listening here today. The people who just are not affiliated. Now you're watching this, so somehow you have some sort of affinity or, or something about church that is okay. Maybe you, you listen because someone invited you to, and I thank you and I welcome you. So we have a group of nuns, and then we have churchgoers, church followers. And so I was thinking, how do you, how do you speak to both of these? And so I'm going to speak to both of you right now as we conclude. And so first I want to talk to the nuns. And I want to say this. I'm sorry if the church failed you at some point in your life. I'm sorry if you tried the church and you didn't get what you were looking for. I'm sorry if you sought Jesus and found religion. But I want you to know this. Jesus is so much more than religion. Jesus is so much more than trying harder doing better, and being good enough. Religion calls you to be, be those things, to try harder, to do good. That is not what Jesus called you to do. And I'm sorry if that message somehow got confused when you sought after him and joined a church. Christianity isn't about going to church. It's not about feeding the poor or doing what's right Christianity doesn't mean, oh, I got to stop drinking, I got to stop swearing, I got to stop sleeping with my boyfriend or girlfriend. This is what I want you to know about Christianity. Jesus loves you. Period. Nothing more to add. Nothing less. And yes, he knows you. He knows where you are in your life. He knows what you did last night. <laughs> he knows your habits and your addictions and the ugly side of you. And guess what? He still loves you. You are more loved than you will ever know by someone who died to know you. I want you to hear that loud and clear today, that the only thing you should take away from this isn't about the church and the building and what you have to do, but the fact that the creator of this world sent his son to save you and he loves you. He loves you. John three seventeen tells Jesus' purpose for coming to earth and it wasn't to condemn. It wasn't to point out your failures. It was to save you. And he does that first by loving you. So that's your takeaway today that Jesus loves you and the only thing that he wants for you for in return from you is you. The only thing he wants is for you to love him back, for you to run into his uh, uh, loving arms and for you to rest in his embrace. And if that's you today, if you're a nun that just wants nothing to do with church and you are hearing this message that Jesus loves you, I would love to hear from you. Right on our website, you can connect with us. Uh, there's emails there. I just want to hear from you. Not to talk you into coming to church, but to tell you a little bit more about the God that I believe that I don't think you've ever heard of. I would love the chance just to chat with you and tell you why I love Jesus and why and how he loves you too. Would you have the courage to do that? Go onto our website, click on the connect tab, and send us a note.
And then secondly, I want to talk to the believers, the Christ followers, those who, who, uh, who, who come to church, who are missing coming to church every Sunday. There's one thing this week that absolutely uh, wrecked me. It, uh, as I read it and as I studied it, I couldn't get past it without it literally making me fall to my knees. And it's the line that I told you earlier that people who were nothing like Jesus, like Jesus. And it wrecked me because I don't think the same thing could be said about me all the time. Most of the time. What about you? Would people look at you and say, those who are non-believers, those who are nuns, look at you and are attracted to you because they see the authentic, the real Jesus through your lives. Can people say that about you too? You see, we are the, to be the thermostats in our culture, but if we are too heavy-handed or overly righteous or come across as judgmental, it detracts Jesus-seekers from you. And it gives the church a bad name. Remember Jesus' purpose for coming to earth, to, to, to earth, as I mentioned a minute ago, not to condemn but to save. And people will never know about that saving Savior unless you model it, unless you tell others about it. It's why we, around here for years now we've been talking about our one, that one person that you want Jesus to save. They're only going to do it through your life. Jesus' strategy was non-followers was to start with love. It wasn't to start with condemning. It was to start with love. Jesus said that it would be by our first fruits that people would recognize us. So live a life of integrity with each other and outsiders, and your church will become a magnet, not a repellent. I want to close by with First uh, Peter 3, verse 8, that says, says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Look, the church is not a perfect place. It is, it is built up and led by people who are sinners and, and do wrong every single day. It, won't, it will never be perfect. So don't seek the church. Seek Jesus. Model him through your lives. Be ambassadors for Christ and run into his open arms and rest in his embrace today. Will you pray with me? Father God, I thank you for your word. Father, I thank you for loving us so much that you would send your son to die for us, to come and to save us, not to condemn us, Lord, but to save us into a right relationship with you. Father, I pray that that will be the message that people hear this morning, that they will hear clearly that Jesus loves them that it's not about trying harder or doing more, but it's about just understanding that they are loved. They are more loved than, than they will ever know by someone who died to know them. Lord, help us to understand that truth, to know that truth this morning. I thank you for being a great and awesome God who would, who would give up his entire life just to seek us out, Lord. Lord, thank you for your son. I pray these things in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Encounter Church podcast. For more information, go to www.encounterccb.org.